1984, the number one song in the land is Prince's When Doves Cry. What an incredible song. And this episode is going to be broken up into two. We're going to do the first section. It's going to cover the 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon, the first Olympic Marathon for Women. And uh, with the content that we had, we needed to break this episode into two. So you're listening to the first part of a two-part episode on the 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon. Thanks for joining us and thank you for uh, being a part of this ongoing series where we highlight classic races, legendary athletes, and iconic moments in the sport of distance running. On your mark, get set. This is the second episode that we will have done in this legend series. First one was the 1983 Boston Marathon with Alberto's out. Yeah, 82. I already screwed it up. Hey, Jeff here. <laughs> in with my first correction. <laughs> Whatever year it was, right? I'm thinking about, I'm already thinking about Joan Benoit in 1983 and slaughtering the field at her Boston Marathon. But, you know, what can we say? We mess up every once in a while. Thanks, Jeff, for, for clearing me up on that. No problem. Um, yeah, so we're excited to have the second episode. And if you liked it, um, our first episode, hopefully you've uh, gone on and given us a rating and maybe shared it with some other people. This one, I think, Jeff, is just going to be epically packed with information, with wonderful nuggets that are going to be unusual and exciting and um, maybe even a little bit controversial in a couple places. But I'm really excited about this one, Jeff. This is the episode I wanted to do from the very beginning. I knew it was the second one I wanted to do right off the bat. And I think you were a little more uncomfortable given that you didn't know necessarily all the players as, as well as I already did from my um, years of paying attention to the sport. But I think you've also now come to realize it's just, I, I mean, it could be one of the greatest races of all time, at least the way it sets up. Maybe the maybe the race itself isn't the most exciting race that's ever been run on the face of the planet, but when you think about what was going on and the and the amount of interest in it and it being the very first women's marathon, um, it's and and you think about the history of women's running and how they got to this point, how we get to the point in 1984 where they're allowing the women to run the marathon, and that it happens in the United States, and the outcome is such that it really galvanizes and changes the sport. Um, globally and definitely in the United States. So that's a little bit of an intro. Um, Jeff, let's talk a little bit about our 1982 episode, what Boston episode. Um, what are some reflections you have about, about it? What do we get right? What do we get wrong? Um, and what do you think about that? First of all, I had a great time with it. We've gotten some interesting feedback from people and it's been fun hearing the reactions and hearing what people liked about it and what they want us to do more of. So that was helpful. Thanks for everyone that gave input. As far as what we got wrong, I think upon reflection, when I learned that Dick Beardsley's wife listened to it and possibly Dick Beardsley <laughs> as well, I, I thought back, wait, was I fair to Dick? What did I say about Dick? I didn't know they were going to listen to this thing. Um, and when I thought back, I thought, you know, I probably could have and should have used a few more superlatives to describe his performance. I yeah. think I discussed it very matter-of-factly, like, yeah, they had a, a big day, hard race, great competitions, classic, but I'm not sure I gave him all that he was due as far as what he did that day. He made that race. And that's actually a category we're going to add to this episode and future episodes, who made the race. Well, in Boston, 1982, uh, he clearly made it. And the other reflection, it was cool to hear from John Brandt and have a little back and forth. He's the author of Duel in the Sun, which we referenced uh, throughout our preparation for the podcast. And we just let him know that we had used his book and he sent a nice note back and actually gave us some tips to prep for this episode. Yeah. I also reflected on my representation of Dick, um, when Jill, his wife, uh, reached out to me and she, one thing that she mentioned that I did feel like needed to be addressed was we talked about Alberto's faith and the importance of his faith to him. But for sure, Dick Beardsley's faith has been important to him from the very beginning. Um, and it was a main point that she wanted to make sure. I think it was not that we didn't indicate that there was a, a faith component in Dick's life, but more that 
um, we underplayed it compared to what, what Alberto's was. And I can see how someone might look at that later and say, um, especially from this vantage point, how could that possibly be right? That, that you've got mm-hmm. a, a, that the way people view Alberto today. So those are just two points that, that, that one point I wanted to make and, um, grateful to everyone who has reached out and shared with us. Hopefully this one will get similar kind of reaction. And, um, well, I mean, I mean, basically we should just get to it. Shouldn't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, I, I like to compare contrast last one versus this one. Mm-hmm. So we talked about a men's race last time. Now we're talking about a women's race. We also talked about what was a one day matchup between Beardsley and Salazar in the last episode. This really is about long overlapping careers, which is different. And then also Boston 82, that was the oldest prestigious marathon on the books. And 1984 Women's Olympics Marathon was the newest prestigious marathon (laughs) on the books. So So same distance and wildly different, the two stories. Yeah. And I think that the, the way that this race I think the biggest part of this race is just the eminence of the four protagonists we're going to be talking about. The where, where who we're going to discuss are many, many time world record holders. Each one of these women has held a world record multiple times, except Rosa. No, Rosa. Well, she. I don't know if she set the the a marathon world record, but she set other world records. Um, Olympic gold medalists world championships, nine time, nine time in a row, winner of a New York city marathon. Um, you know, we're, we're talking four women that had better careers than either of our two protagonists in the first episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Each one of these women had significantly better careers than either one of our two. And so that, that becomes part of the storyline here, Jeff, that becomes part of why there's such, um, a, a, an electricity and energy going towards what this race was all about and how it played out. And even if the race itself, in some senses, as we'll talk about, may have been a little bit of, um, may have felt a little bit of, a, of undersold or, or not as big a deal. It, I even think that is just because perhaps the buildup and the expectations and the lineup of these four women um, just made it, just made this race just something everyone was dying to watch. I mean, I remember it at the age of, of, um, 12 years old, you know, 13 years old. Uh, no, I was at 14 years old, 14 or 15 years old. I remember watching this race. I know you remember watching it as well. So, yep. you know, we have uh, in our own experience, an, an event that was, we were both pretty young and we're like, yeah, I remember that day. I absolutely remember that day. Like that's pretty big deal. Yeah. Let's get into this thing. I'm, I'm dying to talk about it. Cool. So we should give a little bit of, give, give people, we gave people a, a little bit of an intro on, uh, at the very beginning with, with Prince's, um, when doves cry as a, as a cultural yep. reference point. Are there any other reference points we want to, we, we should pull in here to get people kind of get, get a setting of the stage for what the world was looking like at the point in time when we've get these four women, um, stepping on a starting line in Santa Monica, California in, in um, August, early August of 1984. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about 84 and then the the state of the Olympic movement at that time. So in the U.S. in 84, we were recovering from a deep recession through the 70s, early 80s, and the, comp- the country was bouncing back, I think, at that point. We were deep into the Cold War, the late innings of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. I don't know if we necessarily knew it was the late innings. Maybe it seemed like it was going to go forever, but we had this major uh geographic rival and that rivalry really affected the the sporting scene as well with their boycott of 84 on the heels of our boycott of the 1980 Olympics. And the interesting thing about the Olympics at that time, it's such just a massive event now. I know it's always been important, but nobody wanted the Olympics. At the time when they had to bid on the 84 Olympics, the only two cities to bid were Los Angeles and Tehran. <laughs> Pre-revolution. That's crazy. Um, Tehran. That's yeah. crazy. And, and now you've got years and years and years of advanced, um, all kinds of craziness going on with what's, how they're selecting, uh, what, what, what locations to have these events. Yeah. 
But they did an awesome job with it because it was the first privately funded Olympics. To that point, governments had funded the Olympics. They actually turned a profit at that Olympics, and they did it because they used existing infrastructure. They didn't build big new stadiums and aquatic centers. They just used what was there in LA. And they actually made money on the Olympics, which has never had never happened before and has never happened since. And they spent less than, in today's dollars, they spent less than a billion dollars in total on the Olympics to contrast with in the 50 billion range, five zero wow. is what's been spent at the last few Olympics. So wow. it's just taken on a whole different character these days. You know, now it's a national marketing tool. And then I think it was just a little bit more pure and a little bit more sporting and an event that had to stand on its own. Yeah. So it, it's amazing to me when you think about how well that event went off, how little political turmoil there was around it. When you think about what happens in, um, you know, 72 in Munich, what happened in um, 96 in Atlanta, you know, you've got these bombing situations or, you know, terrorist situations. And you would think in 84 with all of the Cold War drama that was going on, there could have been some kind of something more dramatic, but it went off without a hitch. And it seemed like, you know, from the video footage that we watched, people were having a damn good time. It was, it was summertime in LA and what better, what better place in the world to be, right? <laughs> yeah. And TV, the, the TV coverage of it, I think really was a leap forward, a big leap forward from previous Olympics. They had major broadcast revenue coming in. I think they were more professionalized in the production of everything. Still some faces and, and names that we hear today. Al Michaels was called the Olympics in yep. 1984 and, and he's still on the scene. And then uh, fat, last few points. Do you know who lit the flame? The final torch bear who lit the flame, Steve? Trivia? I, I'm pretty sure it was Muhammad Ali, wasn't it? Wasn't it Muhammad Ali? Uh, he was Atlanta. Oh, he was so Atlanta. He did, he, yeah. So it was actually, it was, was Rafer it? Johnson. Oh, Rayford Johnson. Wow. Now that is a blast from the past. Yeah. Yeah. What the 100 or the 200? Oh, the decathlon. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I was thinking about that. OJ carried a torch as well, by the way. Yeah. Before. (laughs) Before he was was on the the lasting symbol. Before he was on the same highway that Joan Benoit was running on, uh, these women were running on, um, uh, chasing, being chased by uh, how many hundreds of cars, uh, police cars, and 10 helicopters as I watched that, whatever year that was. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, LA, man. Crazy place. Crazy place and a, yes. what a place to have an Olympiad and to have this first women's marathon play out. And, you know, they're talking about the women's marathon there's a lot of, there's, there's, a, there's just a bit we need to cover here to talk about what women's running and the growth of women's running and how, how much of a change there is that's happening by the time we get to 1984. Because before this, I mean, it is a terrible scenario for women runners. And I think it's important for women today to recognize how, how limited the opportunities were, how um, challenged the early first and second waves of activists and um, important women who made, who, who made critical decisions in their lives to put themselves at risk, to put their families at risk, to be able to be, um, to be able to have the opportunity to run the way that women have today. So, you know, in, while the first Olympiad happened back, you know, back in the ancient times, you know, 700 BC or so, um, women were also not allowed to compete in the Olympics. So they weren't, um, for many years, like when they, like they weren't at the beginning of, um, the modern era when de Goubertin decided in in 1896 to start his, um, regeneration of the modern Olympics. But there was an event called the Her- the Herian games. That was a series of foot races that women, um, participated in that went concurrent around the same time, not in the same location, but around the same time where women were able to compete against each other and to be able to show their skills and and challenge each other to foot races. Um, but we fast forward to 1896 and it becomes incredibly important for some reason for women not to be able to, to participate. And there were women who wanted to. In fact, there's a really interesting story about a woman named Stamantha 
Ravithi, who was a, a woman from Greece who heard about the Olympiad happening and heard that the, they were going to run from Athens, from Marathon to Athens. And she said, I want to run. She shows up the day before the race and says, hey, I want to get on the starting line to tell her you can't. There's no way you can. It's not allowed. You can't do it at all. She tries to get to the starting line. They remove her from the starting line and uh, the race goes off. The next day, she basically says, I'm going to run the marathon on my own. And she covers the whole distance herself, finishes the race. And, um, you know, the media starts to starts to pay attention to this, but it all gets cut off and she ends up, you know, drifting off into history. We don't hear anything more about her, but in the very first Olympiad, there was a woman, at least one, maybe two. There's some question about whether there were two of them, um, who raced a marathon the day after, very similar to the Herring games where the women were forced separately. And the reason I bring that up is just to say, it's not like women weren't trying. It's not like women weren't saying, God damn it, give us a chance. We want to compete. We want to be on the same level. We want to show what we can do and we can do it, right? It was that society was so backwards ass and so screwed up that men didn't want women to be in these positions. They thought they were going to hurt themselves. I think really it wasn't that so much, Jeff, as it just was, they wanted women to stay in a place and, you know, they wouldn't. As we know, you and I already both know, and as most men who are worth their salt do know, women are at least equal in many cases, at least in mine, they're better. <laughs> so um, <laughs> a little bit more of the history of women's running is in 1926, um, Violet Percy, a woman from London, became the first woman recognized by IAAF, the governing body that 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 tracks track and field and, and events, ran a, ran a marathon. So it's the first woman recognized to run a marathon, ran it in three hours and 40 minutes and 22 seconds in 1926. 1928, the first women's races in the Olympics finally get to happen. Um, and they had races up to the 800. That's as far as they would let women run. But in that women's race, they had, as the, they had prelims and finals. And in the finals, one woman you know, the 800 is a really tough race. They go out really fast. Um, it's a painful race. And no matter what race, whether you watch it today with women, men, anybody at the Olympic level or at, you know, your local high school track meet, you're going to see people suffering over the last hundred meters of an 800 meter dash. And people were, women were suffering. And one woman staggered to the finish. IOC, the um, uh, International Olympic Committee, bans races beyond 200 meters all the way up until 1960 before they're added again. It's just you crazy. Think any men were out of breath after their 880? <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> they think were. Any of them sat down on the infield for a few minutes. Well, the crazy thing is that <laughs> is that their their reports were erroneous. Like one woman had a little bit of an issue, and other women were in pain, but they basically played it up because they didn't want women to run. Um, it's just it, it's it's really hard for us, I think, today to understand that. At least it is for me, having grown up in a modern era. Um, but I'm sure that there are many women alive today, and women who are experiencing discrimination today who know what I'm talking about. And they can just shake their head and say, yeah, this is exactly what happens. Um, it's actually not hard to imagine that in the 20s, it's a lot harder to imagine it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when there were fights for racial equality and the Civil Rights Act. And you get past that and you still have all these struggles, uh, You know, not just civil rights struggles, but for, for women. And the fact they had to push so hard for so long to get the kind of recognition that finally became, began coming around in 84 is baffling. Yeah. I mean, it took till 2008 for them to put a steeplechase into the, into the Olympic games. And still today at the, at the NCAA level, at the NCAA cross country championships, women run an 8k and the men, the women run a 6k and the men run an 8k. Like, what is that all about? Like, it's just anachronistic that there's no point in it and it doesn't make any sense. But so right. one other thing I want to say that sort of before we go into getting into much more deeply into the women's marathon history, it's 23 days, 23 days after Roger Bannister breaks four minutes in the mile, a woman for the first time breaks five minutes for the mile. She runs 459.23. Her name is Diane Leather and nobody knows who she is. That to me is we should take that woman and we should all know her, her name because I don't think that there's, you know, while the, while the five minute barrier is, you know, today we look at it and say more, you know, more, it's harder for a man to break the four minute barrier than it is for a woman to break the five minute barrier. There's no doubt about that. It's still the kinds of opportunities that were afforded to women to be able to do those things that in the mid fifties for someone to do that and to not have credit for it just seems to me to be just absolutely wrong. 
1960, they finally add the 800 meters to the Olympic Games. And then we fast forward to what's happened to the marathon, especially since this is the race we're talking about with, with the uh, first Olympic marathon. 1966, Bobby Gibb is the first woman to run Boston Marathon. So Catherine Schweitzer gets a lot of the accolades for doing that. She ran it the next year. And the reason she gets the accolades because she was the first registered woman. But you know what? She finished an hour behind Bobby Gibbs. And, and you know, I don't know if that was because she was just out of shape or if she was nervous or worried about it, but Bobby won the 1966, the 1967, and 1968. Now, of course, she didn't win them because she wasn't allowed to run it, but they post they they postdated that later on, gave her and actual awards from those years and said that she had won them. And um, I think to me, it just seems really important for us to continue to recognize Bobby Gibb for the, for the, what she did, because for sure she was the first woman to publicly and obviously be in the position to do that. The reason why I think people pay attention to Switzer so much is because she has, was, became a commentator. So a lot of people knew her and, and heard about her, but I think a lot of it had to do once again with a man being on the scene and Jock Semple's attempt to basically tackle her and accosting her on the starting line at multiple junctures along the course have kind of brought Catherine Switzer to our, to our, to our forefront of our head about maybe the first woman that this had to deal with. But that's not true. Bobby definitely um, fought. And, you know, Bobby took a, took a basically wrote a, uh, all a three day bus ride from L from San Diego, all the way out to Boston to win that race. And she landed the day, she got there the day before the race and she had been on a, on a, basically on a, on a, excuse me, on a, a bus all the way there. So I have a lot of love in my heart for Bobby Gibb. Um, I wish that she got more recognition than she does, but you know, 1970, 1972, we also have the New York City Marathon beginning to allow women to run. Um, you know, and this is where we start to look and seeing how these women really started to drop these records. Uh, you know, while they were still dealing with a lot of discrimination in their homes about running, they were certainly just facing a lot of discrimination and outright hostility. Many of these women talk about being beer bottles thrown at them, men yelling and yelling at them, all kinds of obscene things, them not feeling safe um, out on the roads, but they were still hammering away and getting the times down. I mean, 1972, we see Beth Bonner at the new, at the at 1971, Beth Bonner breaks three hours. She runs 255 in the 71 Olympics. Two months later, Cheryl Bridges goes sub 250. Think about that. In a two-month range, we see the world record drop from below three hours and then below 250. Um, interestingly, Cheryl Bridges, guess who her mother is? Who she's the mother of? Well, I'm going to cheat because we talked about this, but <laughs> Shalane Flanagan, which I didn't yeah. know until you told me. Yeah, so Cheryl Bridges set the world record, was the first woman to go under 250. And she's also the mother of one of the best American distance runners and a winner of the New York City Marathon, I think in 2018. Um, so yep. it's pretty pretty interesting little piece of trivia there that, you know, she, and also Shalane has talked about the fact that she didn't even really know exactly how good her mother was and didn't really recognize the steps that her mother had taken over the years to really um, put her in a position where she had the opportunity to win the New York City Marathon. So in 1975, a few years later, Jacqueline Hansen breaks 240. She runs a 238 for the marathon. And by 1978, it brings us to the beginning of our story here, where we've got finally a woman who is pretty much becomes what we call our first real professional woman distance runner and Greta Waits winning her first ever marathon in a world record. Um, and this is sort of the start of this tale that we want to tell and sort of give a little bit of a, a background on the four protagonists that we're going to talk about. Greta Weitz, Joan Benoit Samuelson, who was Joan Benoit at the time, Ingrid Christensen, and Rosa Moda. Yeah, so I'm going to start with Greta. And Steve and I agreed that we are going to come up with the headline for each of these four protagonists, both pre-Olympics and post-Olympics, just a statement or a sentence or two that sums up the career. And, and we have not shared this with one another yet, so I'll be <laughs> curious to see Steve's reaction. So I'm talking about Greta from Norway. Um, Steve picked up the story, 1978 New York City Marathon. I'm going to rewind the clock a little bit, but my headline on Greta is Pride of Norway, First Women's Distance Superstar Undefeated. 
That's her coming into the Olympics. Yes. Yes, she was. Yeah, she was coming in the marathon coming into the Olympics. Yeah, there's some questions about whether, why she was undefeated, but you know, we'll save those for later. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, uh, the field was still developing, but to, to talk about Greta a little bit, she was born in 53, which made her about 30 at the Olympic games, 29. No, she was 30. She had not yet turned 31, but she is Norwegian. Had two brothers, grew up playing games with them, running around with them, playing uh, cops and robbers, she said. And she started to figure out that she could hang with the boys running around and got interested in track and field. And as Steve said, early on, there weren't long distances for women at this time in the 70s. So she was running 400s and 800s and did great. Nationally, she did great, was placing well in youth competitions. And she also learned that she could hang with the boys on longer runs. So she would go out and train with boys in the in her track club that were doing uh, other events. And she had to work hard at it, but she could hang in six-mile runs with these guys. And I think began building confidence in her distance abilities. Her real breakthrough was at age 18, where she set a European 1,500-meter record of 417, still a respectable time. And she made the 72 Olympic team in the 1500. So she really had quite a long career. We're talking about the 84 Olympics. She was there in 72 running the 1500, which is the longest distance you could run for a woman at that time. Yeah, it's crazy. Steve, you look like, uh, we're, Steve and I look, are looking at each other. You look like you have something to uh, add in there. Just another recognition about how frustrating it is that the distances women could run at that time in 1972. So Greta has to run a 1500 meter and I know that it's like, she, she just couldn't, she would get her butt kicked. She ran, she ran the 1500 on and off during those years. She just kept getting her butt kicked by the Soviets who would just sit on her and out kick her because she was, she's a long girl, right? She would, she was, she was a distance runner. Although she didn't really view, right. view herself that way, did she? Uh, no, I mean, she liked, she always liked doing track workouts and going fast and, uh, she continued with this with the 1500 through the 76 Olympics. So she was running 3000s and other competitions, but in the 76 Olympics, they still only had the 1500. And she made it to the semifinals there and came home and gets blasted by the press. <laughs> and she had a tough relationship with the press. Here she was, pride of the nation, out there competing against all these massive countries with greater populations and more of a more programs than her country had. Yet she fell short. And I I think maybe that just hardened her for the rest of her uh, professional career, just not needing the acceptance of the press because she never quite got it unless she won. And her comment at one point was, I'm the one who should care if I won or lost. You're not running the race. If, If I'm happy with my performance, despite not winning, why shouldn't you be? Yeah, I always wondered if she- Pretty mature attitude. Yeah, I always wondered if she became the ice queen that I kind of considered her in the later years. Like she really didn't show a lot of emotion. Um, you never knew exactly where she was at or what was going on with her. That was part of her racing style, but it's also that reticence. I, I know some of it was natural, but when you hear people talk about it, they talk about how nice she was and they always seem surprised. Yeah. Like they're surprised at how nice she was. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that she'd gotten burned by the media and she continued to get burned by the media throughout her entire career. She was never, it was never enough. They always had unreasonable expectations. But the good news is that was in Norway and and not the rest of the world because the rest of the world still considers Greta um, the grand dam of the sport of marathoning. In my, I, I think that there's no doubt that even today people still, even though she's no longer with us, she's, um, She's considered the great lady, the one who changed everything. Taking us to 1978, Steve mentioned this race already. That was her big international breakthrough was coming to New York City Marathon in 1978, having done no runs longer than 12 miles ever in her life. I think it's uh, Fred LeBeau convinced her to come, maybe was thinking of her as a pacemaker. Maybe he thought she could be a real contender. Who knows? But she runs the race, wins the race, sets a world record of 232.30, which was just an unbelievable performance. And this is her her big breakthrough. 
And she goes on on quite a run from then through 84 when we're talking about the Olympics, winning the the New York City Marathon several times. She won in 79, 80, 82, 83. So what's that? Five majors at that time. 81, she she had an injury and, and didn't finish. But she was the premier marathoner coming into this race. And she, I think I, I said she was undefeated. I think she's undefeated in every marathon she finished at yeah. that point. Mm-hmm. So that's Greta. You want to take it to Joan or you think anything else you want to say about Greta? No, just that I just that I don't think, um, no, I'll save it for the race itself and, and our, and the stuff we talk about afterwards, because I just don't think it's possible to overstate the level of expectation that people had of Greta and the level of respect that her competitors had for her. Um, and the level of, cl- she's just a classic, an absolute classic human being. But so going in with Joan, my headline, are you ready for this? Yep. Mainer refuses to accept defeat and steals the show. So she refuses to accept the defeat is actually a quote from the great Benji Durden, who was a journeyman distance runner who picked up lots of paydays, but was never, I don't know if he was even ever an Olympian, but um, he was all over the road racing scene. And that's what he said about, about Joni, that she would always refuse to accept defeat, which is after, when you look at her career is pretty apt about it. And hopefully I haven't tipped the hat too much when I say steals the show, but um, you know, I think it's a sense that, that, here's a young woman who um, I don't think anybody other than herself and maybe a few others thought that she was in a contention to really, really win the thing. um, So Joni grows up in Maine, which she loves. She grew up, she grew up outdoors um, with two brothers, just like Greta, two older brothers in a cold, cold place. Um, Her father was in the 10th mountain division in world war II. So she had an example of two brothers and a father who were tough as nails and who expected everyone in their life to be tough as nails, which is the attitude in that part of the country, very similar to what the attitude is for Norway. When you think about three of our protagonists come from cold weather places where their parents and their siblings were basically hammering the snot out of them, making them believe that they could be, uh, that they needed to be tough. Um, You see why the level of toughness is so great with these women. Um, She wanted to be an Olympian early in life, but she thought that it would be in skiing because that was her first love. But she broke her leg at 14 years old and she kind of lost that aggressive edge that she needed to be the absolute best in that sport. It takes a lot to be aggressive downhill skier, to be an Olympian. And she just didn't have that kind of push anymore after she broke her leg. She broke it pretty badly. So 1979, you know, she ran in college. She ran at Bodoin, which is a, a college, um, a liberal arts college in, how do you say that? Bodoin? Bad one. Badwin? Badwin. I don't really know. Yeah. I'm sure we're going to get hammered for that one, but I don't know how to say it. Um, <laughs> I think Badwin. you're going to get hammered. I'm going with Badwin. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> she she ran for them, uh, and but she didn't have very many competitive opportunities. And she, you know, she ended up going to North Carolina State for a little bit, was on a team that won the ACC championship. And she was um, on a team with another couple of other really good women, but she didn't really have that great a career. She ended up winning what is now called the Honda Award, which was the the award for the num- for the best um, for the best cross country runner of the year for that year that she wasn't that that I think it was 1978 1979 but she um, 1979 was her breakout year in January she went to run a 10k road race in Bermuda and she won the 10k road race and then the next day a friend suggested hey maybe we should run the marathon just as a long workout so she jumps into it she places second in the race and runs 250 54 in her first marathon. But really, it was just a training thing. But the most important thing happened here, Jeff. She got a BQ. So she gets a BQ. And just a couple months later at Boston, age 22, she's wearing a Bo- Bodwin, I don't know, I don't want to say college singlet. She wins, the Bo- she wins Boston in a course record and an American record. So this is basically her second marathon. She breaks the prestigious course record at Boston. She's breaks the American record. And at mile 23, she's offered two items so she could choose two items from a spectator guy standing there with a beer and a Red Sox cap. Guess which one she picked up? (laughs) Red Sox. She picked up the Red Sox hat and there's an iconic, iconic photo of her coming across the finish line with a Red Sox hat on, um, not with a bottle of beer in her hand, but 
Um, you know, between 1980 and 1982, Greta Waits and Benoit start stealing each other's records at the marathon. So at this point in time, you know, that was an announcement that, 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 that Joni was on the scene and they go back and forth stealing each other's um, records, but they don't really go head to head during this time frame. You don't really have, I don't know if we have any of times that they go head to head, but I know that they no no significant memory of them going head to head primarily because Greta was such a, an iconic athlete at that point in time. Um, but here's the key thing. So th- things get really hot with Joni right around 1983. Okay. So Waits wins the London marathon sets a new world record of 225.28. Think about that. This is 1983. Like 225 wins a lot of races these days, right? Still to this day. She breaks Joan Benoit's world record of 226.17. The very next day, Joni goes up at Goat Runs Boston. She wants her record back. She blasts the first 10 miles. Listen to this, Jeff. Her first 10 miles at Boston is in 51 34. That's 513 per mile. Like that, that is, you know, we all know Boston's downhill, right? And they, and they had good weather that day, but she's still, that's unbelievable. She goes through the halfway in 108.34, well beyond a world, what would have been considered a world record if they were holding world records in a half marathon. That's 217 pace, Jeff, 217 pace. Now she, she doesn't hold on right? She, she has to slow late in the race, but she destroys great Greta Waits' record by over nearly three minutes, runs 2.22.43 and it's on. Now you've got the stage set for these two women going into 1984, where you're looking at them and going, okay, these two women, unbelievable. But I have to cover a couple of things here with Joni, because probably the most amazing part of this story is not what happened in 83. But it's what happens basically two months prior to the Olympic trials. So as we, most people know, in order to make it to the Olympic Games in the United States, you have to win, get top three at the Olympic trials. We don't have, like other countries have, where you can get selected through a selection committee or run a certain time and that guarantees it or be a top level in the world. By all intents and purposes, Joni, if she ran for another country, would have been automatically selected onto the team. But that's not the way it works in the US. You have to earn your way to the Olympic team. And so- Two months out, she's in the best shape of her life. She has to pull up in the middle of a run. Knees seizes up. She struggles to get, has to walk home and basically gets a cortisone shot. Seems to clear things up a little bit. 120 miles a week, she gets back at it. Things get worse though, gets worse. She goes back and forth trying to figure out what to do. Stays in Maine for a while, then goes out to Eugene, Oregon. 17 days before the Olympic trials, she has orthoscopic knee surgery, okay? That's crazy to think about. 17 days before the Olympic trials. She rehabs, at, interestingly enough, she rehabs at Jack Daniels' lab that's um, Nike sponsored. And she he suspends a bicycle upside down so that she can, from the from the ceiling, so she can pedal with her arms like an arm, like we now have these arm things. But he, he, that's Jack Daniels, you know, the infamous Jack Daniels. He already has her, immediately she's done. She can't do any physical running with her legs, but he's got her doing anaerobic work and aerobic work with her arms. Um, you know, she, 10 days out, she starts running 10 days out before her race. Okay. She spends 15 hours a day training, ends up straining her hamstring due to a favoring her knee. And she starts 15 doing, hours. You, you mean with all the, the recovery all the ancillary work, stuff, the therapeutic correct. work, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was, but she was spending that much time doing everything she could to get on that starting line. Yep. So four, four days before the race, she runs a 16 miler and she says, I, now I know I can start, but I'm not sure if I can finish. Right. So she gets on the starting line at Olympia. First mile goes off at 554. What does Joni do? What Joni always does. She pops off off the front, steps into a crack and everything pops out of alignment. She starts to freak out at the Olympic trials. Now she's like, I don't even know if I can finish. And here I have this injury, obviously basically happening in the middle of the race. She controls herself. Another girl comes up on her shoulder somewhere around 10 miles. Around 12, Joni again says, I don't want to run with these people. I know I'm not going to be able to work with them later on. 16 miles is the longest run I've done in two months. And she basically goes to the front and holds holds on at 20 miles. She says she's absolutely dying, but nobody can catch her. She wins the Olympic trials and sets herself up to be in a position to be on the starting line at the Olympic Games. But I think that people, when they talk about Joan Benoit and what happens in her career from this point, they fail to recognize just how like how unlikely it was that she was going to even be on the starting line at the Olympic Games. And to me, without talking about that, you're really not getting into what 
the drama is before this race starts, because many of those women are now looking at that and saying, Hey, is she ready? Like she, we all know she barely even got to the starting line of the Olympic Games. Right. She had surgery 17 days before. You know, most of those women are probably, if they're betting women, they're probably counting her out. She had, she had 13 weeks between the Olympic trials and the Olympics. And she had virtually no training for what, 40 days or so before the Olympic trials. And you think of what, if you just look at that period when she was first hurt and you map out from them then to the Olympic Games, what a crucial training block that is. And she missed it, right? Yeah, but she also I mean, says she, later- she, she had a good block in there. So she probably had what, a good eight week, 10 week block of that 13 weeks in between the trials and the games. Yeah, well, she and she had something that happened to her that absolutely changed everything because she said she was training in um, in Maine and it was an unseasonably hot summer and she was really mm -hmm. suffering. And anybody that's trained um, in the heat and then had to run a race, let's say, you know, if you live in central Texas, like I do, and you're trying to run, um, let's say, Chicago or Berlin, you don't really know what your fitness is before you go in because it's so hot. There's no way you can actually do work that holds at the paces that you'd like to run. So she ends up flying all the way back out to LA to run in a 10K race. She runs 32.07, PRs by 20 seconds. And she's like, bam, I'm ready. I know I'm ready. Mm -hmm. And guaranteed her competitors knew that. For sure, Greta did. Greta was paying attention right. to that for sure. So that sets, that sets us up for um, that battle between those two. Tell us a little bit about Ingrid Christensen, because she's a really interesting character. She is. And we're going to have a lot to say about her, I think, post-race, more than there is to say pre-race, just in the interest of time. But my headline on Ingrid is contender and top-tier athlete, but in the shadow of Greta. So Ingrid Christensen, also Norwegian. I mean, imagine being a talent of her level and not being the best in your own small country of Norway. But she had not always been a runner. She was a junior skier in her youth and actually went to the 76 Olympics as part of the Norwegian ski team and didn't come over full-time to running until 1980. She also had a job. She The job was important to her, not just because she had to have one, because she wanted to have one. She worked she in a medical married. lab or something, right? Yeah, some kind of research lab. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Her maiden name also Christensen. <laughs> Interesting. Spelled with a spelled she actually with a changed C. it. Spelled with a C instead <laughs> of a K. Yeah. And I think what you could even say about her at that time though is that she was very advanced in her training. She did a lot of treadmill running because of the winters, where Greta would go outside and run in the snow. Ingrid preferred to train hard on the treadmill indoors. She also was really uh advanced in her training regimen where she was of the hard days hard, uh, easy days easy philosophy. She really believed in the long run where uh, Greta Weitz was not so much into the long run. She didn't do, Ingrid did not do uh, quite as much speed as Greta. And she was also a little bit more aloof and quiet and I think appeared a little more cold on the outside to the public and her competitors. At times, I'm told that some folks consider that arrogant, but for her, I think she was just focused and determined and just not a, an affable type. But she came into the Olympics respected. She had been second at New York City Marathon in 81. She had won the Houston Marathon. She had placed well at the World Cross Country Championships and run very solid times in London. She was a 224 marathoner coming in here. So just a little bit behind Benoit and Vites. So definitely someone to be watched, but not a, a co-favorite like Greta and Joan were. Yeah. And she's, um, you know, when, when I did my research on her, you know, I've, I've, I mean, I just have unbelievable respect for Ingrid Christensen, primarily for the stuff that she does that we'll talk about after the 1984 Olympic marathon. But She's such a quiet family person. And you get that, you know, we read a, a, a book um, by Michael Sandrock um, that was just excellent. And it, it really, she came, and that book, it really came out to me how sweet and really kind she was. But it is true that she had this reputation of being a killer, right? And mm -hmm. and that she was all, 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 game on, right? Not, not relaxed and low key. When you think about it though, I, you know, all these women pretty much 
maybe without other than Rosamoto, they were all killers when they got on the starting line. Right. They were all killers when they went into it. And, and maybe Joni more than any of them. But it's interesting that, Gret, that, that Ingrid is the one that people had the perception of that way. Well, he just said her name. Let's cover Rosa and then get to the action. So my headline for Rosa is no pace, just race. She's renowned for having in her career, basically, she had only one race that she said that she focused on time. And that was, I believe, the 1983 Chicago Marathon. But every other race that she ever ran, all she was concerned about was winning the race. So she was born in Porto, Portugal, which is right on the coast. She grew up playing sports with her sister. They're both runners, um, but Rosa was the the more was the instant talent. Her sister ended up running two oh four, and I think four fifteen. So two oh four for the eight, four fifteen for the fifteen hundred, which is really fast. But Rosa was definitely better than she was. There were no women runners in Portugal. You know, we talked about this with how much um, these women were pioneers and ahead of their years. Um, but you know. In the United States, women were running. It wasn't that unusual in the in the in the late seventies. We'd already had a big running boom with the book jogging by um, Bill Bowerman and the push that he had made with it. But there was almost there were no women runners in Portugal. But Rosa was inspired by Greta Weitz and received steadily steady encouragement from her family and basically said consistently that hey, sports are good for you. You should do them. So even though her parents didn't really understand it and it wasn't accepted by her society, especially the male dominated sexist chauvinistic society of Portugal, which was definitely this way in the 70s, she was at least supported by her family and she definitely felt like okay, this is something I can do. So Rosa's career turns around in 1980 when she meets her coach Jose Zé Pedrosa basically is a medical doctor who was her coach. And it's really important here because she, right around this time, as she was becoming, starting to move to a national and international level as a runner, she ended up having all kinds of problems. She was performing really, really poorly. She went from winning most of her races to not being able to, 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 to beat the competition, to in fact, sometimes having a hard time even crossing the finish line. And her coach basically, who, as I said, he was a medical doctor, doctor they basically diagnosed her as having exercise-induced asthma. And it took her two years to recover from this. But by 1982, she's back in the swing of things and she wins the world championship, I mean, excuse me, the European championship marathon, which was the first all women's championship marathon. So we talk about in the prelude of leading up to this race, Jeff, we have a woman in uh, Rosa who basically wins the inaugural first women's only championship event. We have Whites in 1983 who wins the world championship event and you know, so set up here, two big time marathon races, won by two of our four protagonists. But it's funny because she wouldn't, her federation, the Portuguese would not let her run the marathon. They said she could only run the 3K. And she's basically said, well, if I run the 3K, can I run the marathon? They said, sure. So they let her run it. She wins it. <laughs> she starts from the back and moves her way up to the front on a hot day. Like the temperatures were over 90 degrees and the humidity was over 90%. It's crazy. Um, she started slow. This was in Athens. So she started slow, gradually moved up, catching Christensen at 30K, which she went head to head with, broke away at 35K to notch a surprise win, which nobody expected. In fact, all the three times that Christensen and she met in the marathon prior to the, to the Olympic Games, she won all three of those races. After this win, her life changes. She wins She wins the 1983 Chicago Marathon in 231, as I said, the only race that she ran against the clock. And she goes into the 1984 Olympic Games, basically moving from having been bedridden and barely able to finish running in the mid, in the, in the 81 or so, to winning the European Championship, having a win at Chicago against Ingrid Christensen right before the Olympic game, right before the Olympic Games, and goes into 84 where people are starting to pay attention to her as one of the contenders in the race. Shall we get to the race? Might as well. It's about okay. time, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got these four women and many other terrific women we don't have time to talk about, but these are the four main, the, the four best in the world at marathoning at this time and the four most favored women for this event. And as we said, Greta and Joan were the, the co-favorites, the ones that people really had their eye on for the victory. It could be too, Jeff, that one of the reasons we have to take this much time to prep to get this all set up is because the race itself even though it's a legendary race and one that has to be played into, it doesn't have a lot of 
doesn't have a lot of stuff that goes on, right? Right. Um, e- even though the subtext there throughout it is shock and awe, for sure. There's no doubt about it. There, there, it is a dramatic race, but there's not a lot of drama going on in the middle of it. So we spent right. all that time prepping you because probably more important was the fact that they're standing on the starting line. The four women that's standing on the starting line are the four best marathoners in the world, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And people are just absolutely trying to figure out who's going to win this race. And, right. um, you know, before the race starts, Jeff, here's, I got a question for you. Like we'll start our first question before we start a question. Who do you think people predicted would win before this gun goes off in your mind? Like if you think about it, if you're sitting there predicting, if you're thinking the way most people would be thinking, of course, it's impossible to know afterwards, but who right. do you think most people would have said Greta, prohibitive favorites? I think Greta, just favorites? because they, they'd been trading records, but I think Greta, because Joan had that injury and her time, the her qualifying time, she ran what, a, a 231 or something like that at the trials, which was amazing considering what she had just been through. But if you think of how do you get from there to taking out Greta Weitz, it seemed like a pretty steep hurdle, I think. I agree with you. I would I would say pick Greta. I don't, Christensen, her career gets better after this and Moda's career gets better after this as well. So, you know, you've you've got to pick Greta at, at the starting line. And, and that's really where a lot of this drama sets up. It's setting up this drama between these two women um, who both, almost everybody in the world thinks are running for one and two and, um, and, and what will play out. I'm going to ask you to pretend you didn't hear Steve's comment about not a whole lot going on in this race. There is, we're going to get into it in the second half of this podcast or part two, which I hope you listen to. We'll break the race down. We'll talk about the rest of the decade for these women and debate a few questions about their careers go down some rabbit holes of things we've learned through our research for this and wrap things up. So thank you for listening to part one and hope you pick up the second piece. Thanks. Thanks.